I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 will be in the first half of this chapter this morning as we look at Jesus' healing power. Jesus' healing power. And as we walk through this together this morning, we'll see this key idea that there's no one too vile for Jesus to heal. No one too vile for Jesus to heal. Uh, Matthew 8 verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Well, Matthew has told us in chapter 4, verse 23, that Jesus' ministry consists of two main parts, one being preaching and teaching, and the other being healing. And so in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we just walked through a section of his teaching, really the longest section here, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we follow that up with two chapters of miracles. So in chapters 8 and 9, we have 10 different miracles, kind of in three different sections. And in between those sections are a couple of short passages teaching us about discipleship. In other words, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Well, in Matthew's Gospel... He doesn't always construct things chronologically. In other words, uh, sometimes other Gospels will switch things around. And this isn't because they're trying to trick us. It's because each one of them is written to uh, communicate something different to us about the life of Christ. And the first section of Matthew really builds to Matthew chapter 16 when Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so the whole book of Matthew is intended to reveal this to us, that Jesus is the King, the promised one, the one who will rule God's people perfectly and finally forever. So up to that point, Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples who he is. So he does miracle after miracle with the intent of showing them that he is the Messiah, that he is the king, the one who can do whatever he wants, who has the power to accomplish anything. 
So we get to the end of the book, and the miracles, we don't really have a lot of miracles there, and that's not because Jesus is less powerful. It's because at that point, we're heading to the cross. We're kind of looking at, at, at his sacrificial work at the end of his life. But right here, we're jumping into a key section of Matthew, where Matthew is going to reveal to us that Jesus is the miracle worker, the one who can accomplish whatever he wants. And so we've gone from Jesus, the amazing teacher, 5, 6, 7, to chapters 8 and 9, where we see Jesus, the amazing healer. Well, in verse 1, we find Jesus coming down from the mountain. Well, if you look back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you see that Jesus goes up on the mountain to do what? To get away from the crowds. So by this time, there are all kinds of people gathered around, and he's trying to spend some time with his disciples, so he goes into a mountain to teach them. But by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, it's kind of long. We spent several weeks there. The crowds are back. So he comes down from the mountain, and we see, again, there are great crowds with him, following him. And so as we walk through this this morning, first we see that Jesus heals with power. Jesus taught with great authority, and he heals with great power. So if you look in verse 3, when Jesus encounters this leper, you see immediately he was cleansed. In verse 13, Jesus is speaking words of healing for the centurion's servant. And immediately when he speaks these words, verse 13, the servant was healed at that very moment, instantaneous. In verse 15, Jesus is at Peter's house, and he's interacting there with Peter's sick mother-in-law who has a fever. And the moment Jesus touches her, she gets up and actively serves her guests. So she doesn't just recover, she's actually fully made well. I mean, if you've ever had a serious fever or been sick, and a number have in recent weeks, you know that when you're, when you're well, when your fever breaks, you're not immediately restored to full strength. There's still that kind of washed out, dead, post-sick feeling. And what we see here is Jesus bypasses all that. He heals her instantly. Then in verse 16, we see him interacting with the crowds, and they're bringing all sorts of people to him, demon-possessed people, sick people. And Jesus demonstrates his power over demons and disease. He casts out the Spirit with a word and heals all who were sick. So there's no problem too great for Jesus to heal. And when he heals, the effects of his healing are instantaneous. They happen immediately. So what he's proving here is that his teaching, he taught with authority, and he's sort of upholding or supporting the idea that he has has this kind of authority with his powerful healing. He can banish demons instantly, heal disease instantly. And it's cool, though, because not only does Jesus immediately cancel out the negative effects of illness, he positively restores these people to full health immediately. In other words, uh, so people who go through surgery or illness, if you have serious knee surgery, what follows that? rehab. There's no such thing as rehab for Jesus. I mean, he heals his people and he bypasses the the entire process that even diseases that we can heal, instantly these people are restored to full health. Well, God has worked in various ways throughout history. And as we sit here today, it's easy to doubt that God has this kind of power, that Jesus has this kind of power. Why is that? Because we don't often look around and see this happen. Well, this is in part because Jesus is doing these things powerfully in this moment to prove that he is the Messiah. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and say, it's hard for me to encounter God with this kind of faith. Faith to believe that God can do anything. Faith to believe that a powerful God who can speak the universe into existence can heal any disease. It's hard for us to believe this because we don't encounter it this way. And we think maybe if we saw Jesus walking around, speaking, touching, and healing, maybe then we would believe. But the difficulty with this is, that didn't work in Jesus' day either, did it? I mean, there are people watching Jesus, encountering Jesus, healing people this way, and they don't believe. 
In fact, there's a story told of a man who's, who's um, in the afterlife, and he speaks back to Jesus, and he's like, tell my family, tell them to believe. And Jesus says, even if Abraham were here, they wouldn't listen to him. If you don't listen to Jesus, you won't listen to anyone. And brothers and sisters, God has recorded what has happened in his word for us, for our good and for our faith. And we sit here this morning, if we cannot believe that Jesus revealed to us in the word of God, we would not believe Jesus if he were standing here before us today. God has recorded for us an infinitely powerful God who can instantly heal a deathly servant without being in the same room and banish a demon with the word. Jesus would ultimately demonstrate his power by rising from the dead. And that same power, that resurrection power that we see in the word of God lives in God's people today. The power of God is in, at work in us and it happens through faith in Jesus. Now the difficulty with this is we have kind of pictures or pictures or preconceptions about the way it will manifest itself in us and in our world. And God often shows his power in ways that we wouldn't prefer, that we wouldn't picture, or that we wouldn't imagine. But brothers and sisters, the Jesus who can cast out a demon with a word, who can heal any disease, is powerful enough to take any burden, heal any sickness, and deal with any problem. But the battle for us in this life isn't with whether Jesus is powerful enough. The battle within us is a battle for faith. It's will we accept, will we believe, will we embrace Jesus as he is revealed to us in the word of God. It's why Paul prays, why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. For Paul, the battle was the same. Will we receive Jesus, embrace Jesus by faith as he is revealed to us in the word of God? You see, he's an infinitely powerful God who delights to answer the prayers of God's children. So we move from Jesus' power to Jesus' compassion. Jesus will heal anyone who comes to him in faith. One advantage of Matthew kind of packing these miracles in the way that he does is it reveals something to us about Jesus, but also about the kind of people that Jesus is interacting with. And the first person we see him, see him heal here is a despised leper. Now, leprosy is a word used in the New Testament. Today, it kind of has a specific category of disease, but in the New Testament, it's used to describe kind of a broad swath of various diseases, them, uh, most of them having to do with uh, skin issues, issues that kind of uh, evidence themselves externally. The word leprosy literally means scaly. In other words, uh, the people who have leprosy are people that you can look at and they are visibly uh, gross. They're visibly sick. There's, there's something about them that is visually uh, repulsive. If you want to know more about leprosy in the Bible and their kind of, I don't know, grotesque descriptions, you can see a long list of laws and descriptions in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, where you kind of see uh, the description of what these conditions are. But the point is, these kind of people, they're not the kind of people who can, who can hide it. Uh, in fact, there was uh, a well-known sick man in, in history known, known as the Elephant Man because his, his face was deformed. And, and it's connected to the same kind of thing, elephantitis. It's, it's things that you can look at and you can see that this person is sick. In other words, it's not something that's able to be hidden. Lepers are visibly and physically gross to the people around them. Well, in a day where there aren't hospitals in the way that we know them today, lepers were forced to live outside the community in what we call leper colonies. So they kind of had their own communities away from the community of the people. So in other words, they, they weren't welcome to worship here among us. They'd have to have their, their own gathering, their own place, their own shopping malls. 
They couldn't interact with other people. There are well-known stories in Jewish history of people doing everything they can to avoid any contact with a leper. So not only not being near the leper, not being anything that was near the leper, there's a well-known rabbi who, who, would, who would, uh, he would screen everything that came to him. And if he found out that he was you know, consuming a piece of food, say an egg, from a market in which there had been a leper, he wouldn't eat it. Or another well-known teacher who, if he saw a leper, he wouldn't, uh, the leper's job was to cry unclean to pe- keep people from coming close. He never gave them the chance. He threw stones at them to keep them away. So they would do whatever they could to avoid contact with this kind of person. Now imagine, I mean, not just kind of the experience and kind of the social awkwardness, but imagine how this would affect your psyche if you're one of these lepers. If, if you are a person who has dealt with any sort of significant rejection, maybe abandonment by a spouse, difficult relationship with a parent, a, a friend that you feel like betrays you or rejects you, or is nice to your face and mean behind your back, and, and think about how this affects you. And now imagine that every single person you interact with treats you that way. And imagine you're that person who has been emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically bruised to the point when you approach Jesus, it's just one more person on a long list of people who are rejecting you. The reason people fear the leper like this is because they can't help the leper. I mean, a touch of compassion can't help the leper. It can only harm you. You can't comfort that leper. You can only become unclean. It it doesn't flow two ways. You can't help him, but he can harm you. So not only do people not touch them, they avoid them all together. They're sort of kept in the infectious disease ward and kept away from everyone else. So when this leper comes to Jesus in verse 2, this isn't a friendly arrival. He's threatening Jesus and everyone else there. His very presence is a menace to everyone there. It's likely that when he comes, people aren't watching disinterestedly. They're probably shouting, stepping back, getting as far away as they can from this man. Maybe some people are even throwing things at him, saying, stay away, stay away, you're not clean. They give this leper a wide berth. But Jesus does something absolutely mind-blowing. Look at verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. It's no accident that this story is immediately followed by the story after this. We read through it quickly, and we're going to look at it in a moment. But in the very next story, a centurion has a sick servant. How does Jesus heal that servant? Does he ever see him? Does he speak directly to him? Does he have to be in his physical presence? No, he doesn't touch him. He doesn't even approach him. He's healed instantly. Jesus doesn't need to be physically in a space with a person to heal that person. And yet here he reaches out and touches this leper. He doesn't touch him to heal him. He could heal him however he wanted. He touches him to show him that he loves him. He touches him because he has compassion on him. He touches him because he has a heart of mercy and grace. A person who has been rejected by everyone he loves, by everyone who has seen him, by someone who feels on the outside edges of society, not a part, who's grotesque, gross, no one wants to be around. Jesus reaches out and touches him as the crowd scatters. Jesus is showing this man that he loves him. Imagine that you've gone days, weeks, months, years with no one touching you. And then someone touches you. 
I mean, imagine the emotion of this moment. The most famous person here, the celebrity teacher, the celebrity healer reaches out and touches you. Matthew tells us what happens, but he doesn't tell us how the man responds. But I cannot imagine that this isn't an incredibly emotional moment. To be touched. I imagine this man is weeping. To be touched. To be loved. To have any sign of affection for the first time in forever. You see, there are real prisons. And there are figurative prisons. And this man has been in solitary confinement. With no love no compassion, and Jesus touches him. I mean, friend, there is no person too gross, no person too detestable, no sinner too evil for Jesus to love. He'll accept anyone, even the person that everyone else feels like stepping away from, feels like recoiling from. And, you know, we're a little... I don't know if we're any better. We're actually not better. We're just a little cagier in the way that we do this. We do it behind the person's back, right? I mean, we, we smile, but then we, we, we grimace away. Or we look sideways out of the corner of our eye. The people that we want to reject, there is no too shame too great, no shame too great for Jesus. There's no stain too deep for Jesus to cleanse. Sometimes that stain is something we feel that we have done. And brothers and sisters, If you think, and right now, it's washing back over you, the things you've experienced, the things that you've done, and you know that if people knew they would reject you, brothers and sisters here, there is no stain too great for the blood of Jesus to cleanse. There is no sinner too detestable for Jesus to love. He will embrace anyone who comes to him. But sometimes our shame is not of our own making. There are people here this morning, no doubt, who are touched by the feeling of shame and revulsion because of something done to you. Something that you've experienced at the hands of another. There's a part of you that wonders if you're guilty for this. If there, was, if there was any way, some way that you could have avoided this. And so you deal with this shame. And it's not your shame, it's the shame of another, but it's put on you. And you carry that here this morning. But brothers and sisters, Jesus will welcome anyone who comes to him. Don't believe the lie that you're too bad for Jesus. Don't believe the lie that he'll never accept you, never embrace you. He will accept anyone who comes to him. And he is powerful enough to help you, to deliver you from any problem, any sickness, any sin. Jesus is an infinitely powerful God who is an infinitely loving Savior. What a gift. I have this visual in this moment, if this were some sort of Marvel comic movie, the way that this villain, the leper, has interacted with everyone. When he touches, they die. They become unclean. But when Jesus touches him, it's like you can see the, the line of light pushing this illness back. And this, in this moment, Jesus fully and finally heals this leper. The flow goes the other way. For every other person who encounters this leper, his dirt, his sickness flows on them. 
but now it goes the other way. And note the language here. Other kinds of diseases are healed. What happens to lepers? Lepers are cleansed. Jesus washes this man. So the next time you struggle with the fear of shame or a memory of rejection and what that means for you, remember this leper and remember Jesus reaches out and touches him. This isn't the only person that Jesus heals. He also encounters a Gentile occupier. This brings us to the second story. So Jesus has been on the mountain, and now he enters uh, the town of Capernaum. So Jesus' ministry, by the end, he'll be down in the south of Israel, in Jerusalem, Palestine. But now he's up in the Galilee area, around the Sea of Galilee, right there on the top side, right at the north. You can see the town of Capernaum. A lot of his Galilean ministry, a lot of his public ministry, centers around this town. So Jesus goes to this town, this town on the sea there, and when he comes there, he meets a centurion. Well, centurion ranks somewhere near our modern army captain. In other words, he's not the top of the food chain, but he's not the bottom of the food chain. Centurion, century, hundred, means he commands around a hundred soldiers. It wasn't always exactly a hundred, but somewhere uh, in that neighborhood. He's got a tribune who ranks above him, say a colonel, and then four or five uh, ranks up above that, all the way to the most senior officers, to those who would command, command the whole imperial army. So he's a relatively important officer, as in he's the highest ranking officer who's actually out in the field with soldiers. So the other guys are kind of, I don't know, they're, they're the brain trust at the back and make sure everyone goes where they want. But he's the highest frontline guy. Well, he's also a Gentile. Well, Gentiles aren't quite as gross as lepers, but Gentiles are also unclean and despised by Jews. And Roman soldiers often are resented as Gentiles who occupy their invading army. You can imagine how we would feel if we were uh, being occupied by North Korea or China or Russia or something like that. You, you, would, you would tend to resent those people, and that's how the Jews felt toward this man. But Luke chapter 7 tells us this centurion, he's not your average Roman soldier. He's actually a really good commander, and, and he's really good to the Jewish people. We know this because there we have a different account of this same story, and Jew, Jewish elders come and also intercede for this man because he's built a synagogue for them. In other words, he's doing what he can in this very awkward relationship to establish a good relationship. Nevertheless, this man, though he's in power, is held at arm's length by the Jews. Well, because this man ranks where he does, kind of in the middle of the food chain, the, command, the chain of command, he says he understands both what it means to be under authority and to be in authority. Verse 9, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Well, he has a servant who's terribly ill, and he believes that Jesus can heal his servant, whether he actually sees the servant or not. Well, his faith is pretty remarkable. I mean, He's encountering Jesus. He's not even of kind of the ethnic group there that's following Jesus. And Jesus then no doubt offends some people in the crowd by saying, truly I tell you, I haven't found faith like this in Israel. In other words, this outsider, this invader, this occupier, he's got it figured out. He's a step ahead of everyone else here. Well, the centurion recognizes the flow of authority. In other words, how does it work if you're a member of the imperial army? Well, the same way it works today. You could be court-martialed for disobeying this, this commander, this centurion. Just like you could be court-martialed for disobeying a, a junior officer. It doesn't have to be the, the commander-in-chief or even the chiefs of staff. You can be court-martialed for disobeying down the food chain. Why? Because the way it works is ultimately you're, you're disobeying the top of the food chain. And, and so that's, that's the way this authority works. 
Well, this centurion recognizes the same thing about Jesus. He recognizes that his authority is divine authority and that when Jesus commands, when Jesus speaks, it has the weight of God's authority. Jesus can cleanse a leper and heal the servant because he is God himself. Without coming, in, coming out and saying it, the centurion is confessing something about Jesus that all these Jews haven't figured out yet, that he is God in the flesh. Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and while he's there, he encounters people. And he's amazed by what he sees there too, but he's amazed by something different. There he's amazed at the unbelief. Here he's amazed at the remarkable faith of this Gentile man. And in just in case he hasn't offended everyone enough yet, he goes a step further in verse 11. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In other words, many Jews who think they're part of the kingdom of God are not. And many who they consider outside the kingdom are. And the ones who think they are, they're going to be cast out. And these others, these Gentiles, will be welcomed from the ends of the earth. And this is because the entrance into the kingdom of God isn't by race, ethnicity, or nationality. It's by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Well, this brings us to the third encounter of Jesus here, a friend's mother-in-law. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And Jewish law also forbids touching someone with a fever. This is because it makes you unclean, but... Obviously, there's some pretty good logic to this because you don't want to be touching sick people anyway. And again, this miracle is done not just for someone with a fever, but for someone on the fringes of society. Now, this wouldn't jump out at us as quickly, perhaps, as the leper, but a favorite prayer, a blessing of Jewish men was, Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Yet, Jesus also heals this woman by touching Jesus welcomes all sinners, all kinds of sinners. And we see this in the life of Christ, but one thing that this should convince us of absolutely is that the community of Jesus should be a place of welcome and acceptance for all sinners. If Jesus is a Savior that welcomes people, Jesus' people ought to be people that welcome people. It doesn't mean that people stay the same. Because every person that has a real encounter with Jesus, that person is healed, cleansed, touched, made well. But Jesus is the kind of person that spent time with sinners, divorced women, tax collectors, and they all felt safe around him in a community where they didn't feel safe around the other people. People of God ought to demonstrate welcome to all people, especially people that are on the fringes of society, especially people that deal with rejection especially the people that deal with a lack of of love and community and place. Our church should be characterized by a culture of grace because we're not remarkable. We serve a remarkable Savior. We're loved by a God who loves us remarkably. We're just sinners saved by a remarkable God. The only thing remarkable remarkable about us is our sin. I mean, the reason that the foot, the ground at the foot of the cross is level is because they were all sinners. We all have to confess that we're sinners. So think through the way that Jesus embraces us in our shame. Or think through the way you'd want Jesus to embrace you in your shame. And imagine loving and welcoming and embracing others that way. Well, there's one other thing that these stories hold in common 
They're all people on the fringes of society, but also these people embrace Jesus by faith. So the first two initiated this request with a, with a request in faith, Jesus, would you heal me? In the third, we don't see it happen quite that way, but we see her respond. We see the, the actions that follow in faith. We see her serve Jesus immediately. It's possible that Jesus' plans for healing you or healing a loved one are different than what we see here. It's possible that they're different than what we would desire or we would intend or we would hope. But there is a prayer that Jesus always answers with a resounding yes. And it's the cry of faith from a sinner that recognizes, apart from you, God, I have no hope. Jesus, would you rescue me? Would you heal me from my sin? And to that prayer, God always answers a resounding yes. So if you're here this morning without Jesus, if you're here this morning feeling the weight of your sin, would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? Well, we don't always know why God heals one person and doesn't heal another. We don't always know why one lives and another does not. But Matthew tells us why Jesus performs these miracles. He does it to prove that he is the Messiah. Isaiah 53, we began our service by reading a verse from there, but it's a classic prophecy about the suffering of Jesus. And we often think of it exclusively in conjunction with the suffering that leads up to his death. But here, Matthew makes another connection for us. Jesus does this to take upon him our illnesses and our diseases, verse 17. In other words... Part of Jesus' dealing with sin is dealing with the consequences of sin. Part of Jesus dealing with all the sin and death in this world is Jesus dealing with illness and sickness. You see, Jesus' perfectly lived life allows him to be a perfect sacrifice for sin, and his sacrificial death allows him to deal with sin and death and all of their effects. Jesus' healing ministry lays a foundation that his death will ultimately accomplish He deals with our greatest problem, that we are sinners in need of forgiveness from a holy God. But he also deals with every problem that flows from this greatest problem, including the defeat of sickness and death. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we see two things linked pretty closely, forgiveness of sins and healing of disease. Yet every person that Jesus heals will eventually die. And there's this great miracle, Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus, he's dead in the tomb. And Jesus does what? He raises him from the dead. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus steps out and he lives. But where's Lazarus? He died. Eventually he died. Every person that Jesus heals will die. You see, Jesus' first coming provides a way of rescue, but he hasn't permanently crushed all the effects of sin yet. He dealt sin a death blow. It is dying, but he hasn't permanently crushed the effects of sin yet. Why is that? Well, Romans 2 tells us why. He says, God does this so that you might repent. God does this in his mercy. Because when God crushes sin, he will also crush all of his enemies, including all who have not placed their faith in Jesus. God doesn't crush all the effects of sin because he'll have to crush everyone affected by sin. And God doesn't do this in mercy. So we live in a world where we still experience the consequences of sin, 
in a temporary way, including illness. And if you're here this morning and you know the effects, the pain of debilitating illness, or you know what it's like to watch a loved one go through this or to to lose a loved one to this kind of thing, you also know what it's like to long for a world where that doesn't exist. To long for a world where there is no illness, no sickness, no death. That day isn't here yet, but brothers and sisters, it is coming. Isaiah 53 promised that Jesus, the coming Messiah, would bear wounds in our place, be struck in our place, would carry our sicknesses, our diseases in his body. But it also says that with his wounds, we are what? Healed. We are healed by the blood of Christ. He deals with our sin and he will deal with all the effects of sin. He will put an end to all of this, all of the disease, all of the destruction, all of the rejection. Every person that feels like this leper, he's going to heal that feeling. He's going to heal our outward diseases, the ones that we can see. and He's going to heal the holes in our heart, the hurt on the inside that no one can see, that we are afraid to express to anyone. And on that day, there will be no crying. There will be no grieving. There will be no death because on that day, Jesus will fully and finally not only deal with sin, but all of the effects of sin. Jesus heals to prove here that he is the Messiah and to demonstrate that not only will the predictions about Jesus' death and rescue from sin come through, but also everything that God says about banishing disease from existence will come to pass. Brothers and sisters, that day is not here yet, but it is coming. As surely as Jesus himself came and as surely as Jesus himself rose from the dead and stepped on the head of sin and sickness. So let's take a moment now to thank God that we serve this Jesus. To thank God that he is a God who banishes sin and all its effects and that that day is coming. Let's respond to the word now in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk to, talk to God personally and then I'll close this time in prayer. God, thank you for our Savior, Jesus, who lived a perfect life so that through him we might have life and died a substitutionary sacrificial death so that we can deliver, be delivered from the effects of sin and death. God, I pray for those here this morning who are struggling with rejection, struggling with hurt and shame. God, I pray that you would help them see hope through the compassion of Jesus. And I pray for those here who don't know you, God, that they would lovingly, by faith, embrace Jesus, turn from their sin. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to respond to the word now together by singing uh, about our wonderful and merciful Savior. As we do this, if there are particular ways that God is at work in your heart, we would love to talk with you or pray with you in any way that we can encourage you. 
uh, that we're available now, also uh, throughout the week, if that would be something that would serve you better. I'll be here on the front row if the Lord's leading you to consider a baptism or church membership. We'd love to talk with you about that as well. Would you stand please to your feet as we sing together? Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of for worshiping with us together this morning. I hope your heart is encouraged by the love and compassion of our Savior. And as you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Have a wonderful day.